This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Friday morning sporting edition of Pacific Beats coming to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I'm Richard Hewitt and in the program today, 14 Pacific athletes, one from each of 14 nations are in Scotland for the World Indoor Championships will cross live to Glasgow. He's a popular favourite to take over as head coach of the Flying Fijians, but Frank Bovert's application has vanished. People are frustrated that the Fiji players are not playing freely and I wanted to give back that freedom to the players, develop their intelligence, develop their training instead of doing weights all the time like they were doing at the World Cup. And after PNG in Fiji, could it be the turn of Tonga and Samoa to field teams in a state rugby league competition in Australia? There are plenty of levels that they can compete at. And then as you gradually build capacity, they move upwards in the ladder of competitions. That's the approaches that we've taken with Kavita Silktails. More from the New South Wales Rugby League CEO David Trodden later in the programme. First, though, World Rugby has sounded a fanfare after confirming the format for what they call a reimagined Pacific Nations Cup and declaring it to be a vibrant new format designed to expand rugby's reach and accelerate competitiveness within a new global competition structure. By the time the tournament kicks off in late August, two of the three Pacific Nations involved, Fiji and Tonga, and quite possibly the third, Samoa, as well, will have new coaches at the helm. And it'll be interesting to hear whether any of those coaches believe their teams are better off under the new format. One man who's never short of an opinion on how the Pacific nations are treated by world rugby is the New Zealand Herald's uh, Gregor Paul, who joins us this morning. Uh, Gregor, welcome once again. Thank you for having me. Uh, this new competition, um, Fiji, Tonga and Samoa line up on one half, USA, Canada and Japan line up on the other, and the top two from each of those three then go forward to a second stage. At most, a team will play four games. At worst, they'll play two. Uh, the, is the Pacific three any better off? Well, not really, other than the fact that there's a bit of certainty around the sustainability of the competition in the sense that World Rugby have clearly elevated the importance of having you know, a financially viable competition uh, in this part of the world. I mean, it's, it's kind of sitting, isn't it, as a, as a rugby championship for the other countries in the Pacific. So there's a little bit of security and certainty that's coming with that. But no, not really. I mean, it's, it's, it's not really changing the shape of their season or, or giving them exposure to the, you know, the high-end rugby that, that they also need. It, it's, it, it's a start, I suppose, in terms of changing an attitude, but it's not really delivering um, the kind of landscape that's going to make everyone think, wow, here's a pathway for these countries to develop into you know, the full, full potential of these countries can now be achieved. And they are all tier two nations uh, and what they've been crying out for for the longest time is more competition against tier one nations so clearly this new tournament doesn't address that issue at all no that issue is going unaddressed worldwide at the moment while the tier i don't know if we're allowed to call them tier one nations anymore but you know this whole idea now that the the top 12 teams in the world the, the rugby championship teams and the six nations teams are pretty close to agreeing that they're going to play this World Nations Championship or whatever it's going to be called in 2026. And that's pretty much going to lock out everyone else. Other than the two 
teams who have not yet been identified who are going to jump up and join this elite league. And at the moment, it is Japan and Fiji who are potentially going to be asked to step up. So if you're outside of that group, and we don't know for certain yet that Fiji will be included, although we suspect that they will, your, your future in terms of how do you, when and how do you play Tier 1 nations is largely unclear. It looks like you're going to get maybe one window in July where you'll get thrown a bone. And we've seen a little bit of that. You know, For example, South Africa are playing Portugal this summer, uh, the um, Northern Hemisphere summer. Uh, they're going to go down there and play. And New Zealand are going to play Fiji in the U.S., but where we get a calendar that, that gives Samoa, Tonga, and even Fiji certainty that they've got the right mix of fixtures, that includes you know, the Pacific Nations Championship and a whole smorgasbord against, you know, w- whether it's New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, we just don't have any clue when or even if that is going to happen for them. Supposing it were to unfold in that way and Fiji were to be included, doesn't that just drive a wedge between Fiji, Samoa and Tonga? Because it'll push Samoa yeah. and Tonga even further away and give Fiji an opportunity to climb the ladder. Look, 100% that is going to be the problem. If you jump up into that elite level competition, you will be given or Fiji will receive a significant amount of broadcast revenue as a result. So financially, it will leapfrog them into a different stratosphere to where they currently are. And if you move into that top league, not only will you get broadcast revenue, you'll have the ability to sell sponsorship packages because the eyeballs on this competition are going to be huge. You're going to have certainty around fixtures, which is going to attract um, you know, players. It's going to attract coaches who are going to have certainty about committing. And probably the other big thing is once Fiji get that leg up into that elite division, it will become easier for them to negotiate player release with major clubs. Uh, Now, if you're Samoa and Tonga looking at that going, well, hang on a sec, we're not on that life raft. Where do we go? What does our future look like? And that is the issue because, you know, if Fiji become a a, a top nation, if you like, what's even going to happen to the Pacific Nations Championship? Are Japan and Fiji going to remain in that? Or are they going to be invited maybe through a gradual process to join the rugby championship? And if so, where does that leave the wider Pacific region in terms of not just Fiji, uh, not just Samoa and Tonga, but also, you know, the USA, Canada, that whole region uh, will be left behind. And it's very difficult to see what Samoa and Tonga's future will look like if and when inevitably Fiji are invited to to that top table. If that invitation is waiting to be delivered, uh, should World Rugby be concerned about inviting a team from a country that currently has no board, no CEO and no coach, and now we're even told that they're losing applications from people who want the job? Yeah. I mean, that is clearly one of the barriers to... Uh, Fiji's promotion. And that is something that I'm sure the Sanzar nations, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, um, and Argentina are concerned about, about bringing Fiji into a rugby championship or, you know, just bringing them up into that top 12 world nations championship. There needs to be political stability, if you like. There needs to be good governance. There needs to be strong leadership and stability. And there needs to be trust that if Fiji, look, there's no issue with, uh, the, the, the pipeline of talent that, that Fiji can put on the field. Everyone can see 
you know, there are there are fantastic Fijian players all around the world. They've got the ability to be a top four team. But there are concerns around all these other issues about making sure that that team is appropriately supported, that it can attract uh, the right coaches, which is you know which has clearly been a problem. They've had some turbulence there. We saw, you know, Vern Cotter came for whatever it was two and a bit years and then suddenly departed. And I don't think he's the first Fijian coach to suddenly depart under you know unclear circumstances. So there needs that problem needs to be fixed uh, to give everyone confidence that Fiji can provide the, the wider support um, to their team and to their players and to their coaching staff that they're going to need to be able to compete at that level. Let's take a look at, at Super Rugby Pacific. The new season kicked off uh, last weekend. And um, my conclusion, very encouraging start by Moana Pacifica. They didn't win, but they were competitive against the Highlanders. They were ahead at half halftime. Uh, the Drew were rather disappointing against the Blues. They didn't seem to get going until the second half. Is Is that the way you saw it? Yeah, look, absolutely. The, the the word out of Moana and the evidence that they produced in Dunedin is encouraging. Look, they've 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 changed their coaching team. They've got Tano Among as, as head coach and look, he wants to be there. He is committed to that team. He is committed to the concept of the team. And he's packaged he's packaged a good group of people around him. They've they've um they've got a a, a group of players who are a year wiser. Uh, they're more comfortable now in a professional environment, I suppose. Uh, and he's a tough, he's a tough guy, Tanner. He, you know, he's talking about putting standards in place about getting guys to understand what being a professional means. And by all accounts, the players are fitter, they're more cohesion in their game plan, better understanding of what they're trying to do. And I think they will. I don't know how many games they're going to win this year, but they're certainly going to be an awful lot more competitive, even if they aren't winning all the time. They're certainly going to be adding a lot of value to the competition and growing in confidence, which will be helpful because I think that might persuade players who are eligible for that team to want to get involved. So, I, And also, look, Moana have had a couple of big wins off the field recently where they've picked up some major sponsorships to give some security around their financial viability, which is really important too. So, look, I think there's a growing optimism that they're going to settle and they're going to grow and they're going to be uh, a lot more competitive this year. Fiji, uh, the, the, the drill, well, we saw this pattern last year, didn't we? They're, they're one team at home and they're one team away. When they're in Fiji, they're almost unbeatable. And then they come out on the road and they, they struggle a little bit for whatever reason. They haven't really shown the best side of themselves. Wee bit of a worry because, you know, it was hot and sunny. It was Fijian-like conditions in Whangarei where they were playing and they didn't that didn't really spark them up. They had a lot of support in the crowd as well and that didn't get them going. So, look, hopefully they've just got to learn the art of being themselves on the road um, and we'll see if they can do it this year. Of course, uh, this weekend it's, it's the Battle of the Pacific with Moana taking on the Drua here in Melbourne. But I was just going to ask you uh, finally about Panina Pacifica, the new women's team. Uh, they, they made their debut in pre-season for Super Rugby Women, as it's now called, last week. They pushed the Reds all the way and it was a close defeat for their first ever game. Um, encouraging signs for a team that had only been together literally for a week, uh, and yet the door appears already shut to them actually entering the competition proper, which seems a bit of a shame. I mean, shouldn't people take a look at them before they make those decisions? Yeah, look, I think there's a there's a wider issue around support for women's rugby. Full stop in the in the Pacific region. There's there's financial stress 
that's being felt here in New Zealand, uh, certainly in Australia, uh, and clearly that you know the islands themselves have never really been um, you know overly flush with money to to support growth. Now that that that's a, a, an issue because what tends to happen entirely wrongly is when money becomes an issue, it's usually women's programs that become the first thing to be you know underfunded or taken off the agenda. So that's that's a wider issue I think for the Pacific region, uh, particularly here in New Zealand as well. They've got four teams. They would love to have a, a a Super Rugby Pacific competition similar to the to the male competition with which would include you know teams from New Zealand teams from Australia teams from Fiji Samoa Tonga whether these are combined or individual they don't really know but they want to see growth in the whole region and you know it is disappointing that as soon as financial stress hits it's always women that are the first thing to to go so like all all you can hope is that they get an opportunity to show that they're, you know, what they can do, and that you know that people watch it, get behind it, support it, and change minds about what the viability of all this looks like. Well, they certainly made a good start last weekend. It'll be interesting to see how they go this weekend. Uh, Gregor, as always, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Gregor Paul, there, rugby writer with the New Zealand Herald, uh, casting his eye over some of the issues affecting uh, rugby at uh, super and international level in the Pacific right now. And harking back to Super Rugby Pacific, uh, promises to be quite a battle when the Drua take on Moana in Melbourne this weekend. Bragging rights in the Pacific up for grabs, of course. Reflecting on the Drua's opening round defeat against the Blues in Whangarei, coach Mick Byrne says his players need to play with a different focus. One of our key ones is going to be the physicality around our breakdown. I thought we were trying to be technically right and we just got to understand that the game's on now and it's got to be more physical first, technical second. And I think we've we focused on that this week, a little bit more physicality out of the training, worked harder at getting in there, working harder at uh, securing up the ruck and being prepared for the counter ruck. I think that's an area that we've got our discipline, but also that part of it around the breakdown. Both sides of the ball, I'd like to think we can put a little bit more pressure on their breakdown on their ball as well to try and slow it down. But also we need to be uh, a lot more accurate and physical around the contact area when we have the ball. Now, McBurn is uh, certainly looking forward to taking on former all-black great Tana Omanga, Moana's uh, new head coach. And he says whichever way the game goes, spectators can expect to be entertained. Tana will certainly get into them culturally around what they're playing for and, and why they're playing. Tana's a tremendous man and I'm really looking forward to catching up with him on the weekend. But as far as his team goes, I think they'll bring what they always bring. You know, they'll bring their physicality as a, a battle of the Pacific. And certainly our boys will be doing everything they can to show the pride of our part of the Pacific. So we're looking forward to, a, as always, a good physical clash. But I also think people in Melbourne that come out to watch, they'll watch some exciting football as well. You know, I know both sides are trying to knuckle down and be a little bit more clinical in the way they go about their business. But they've still got a lot of uh, X Factor out on the field and it should be an exciting day. So the Drua versus Moana in Super Rugby Pacific. Uh, meanwhile, the Super Rugby women preseason continues with Panina Pacifica fresh from that battling performance in their first ever game last weekend against the Reds, now preparing to take on the Brumbies on the Gold Coast. Pacific Beat. 
You're with the Friday Morning Sporting Edition. I'm Richard Hewitt. And uh, 14 athletes, one from each of 14 Pacific nations, are in Scotland right now to take part in the World Indoor Championships hosted by the city of Glasgow. Twelve of the group of sprinters who will compete in the 60 metres dash, while two, Papua New Guinea's Adrian Managi and Tonga's Masesi Foriaki, go in the 60 metres hurdles. The Pacific contingent features nine men and three women. So what are their prospects and how have they been preparing for this uh, global event? Oceania Athletics Performance Manager Alison Fairweather is with the athletes and joins us from Glasgow. Uh, Alison, good evening to you over there in Scotland. Good evening, Richard. Thank you for having me. So uh, I imagine an air of anticipation amongst those athletes. Uh, I suspect for many of them that they'd never made a trip like this before, let alone competed at such a big event. Yeah, I think for a lot of them, it's their first time um, in competing in the world indoors. So some of them have been to world championships before, but world indoors is a totally different environment for them because of the type of track that you have and the stadium, the warm-up facilities. So it's all an interesting experience for them. So tell me a little bit about how they have been preparing for this event, because I think I can say with some degree of confidence that there are no indoor facilities anywhere in the Pacific. So I assume they've been training either in Australia or New Zealand. Yeah, pretty much they have been. So some of them have actually still been at home on their islands. So they've just been trying to prepare for the shorter distance. Uh, A couple of them, we've got Joseph Green from Guam, who actually lives in the States. So he's run a little bit of indoors. Uh, And Adrienne Managi had spent some time over in the States some years ago. So she has actually competed in the indoors. But I think her um, 60-metre hurdle PB is from about six or seven years ago so we'd be hoping for something better from her considering she's improved her times a lot over the years so in terms of of targets i mean what are these athletes looking to achieve because uh, one thing we can say about 60 meter races is uh, they're they're over very quickly They certainly are. If you blink, you miss them. But a lot of them, I noticed today we saw the start list came out and a lot of the boys are really excited because a couple of them are in Noah Lyles' heat. So for them to be able to line up next to someone like him and one of the others with Christian Coleman. So we're talking absolute superstars of the sport and um, superstars of the indoor world as well. So to be able to run against in a heat against athletes of that calibre, would be just such a buzz for them so they're pretty excited they're nervous but excited at the same time i noticed uh, the video that was posted uh, by ocean athletics uh, featuring uh, windsor cacao from uh, nauru um i mean he's saying mm-hmm. he, he's just proud to be representing his country and, and he's out there to try and break the nauru's uh, national record i mean in essence is that what most of the athletes are aiming for to, to do the best in terms of their own country and their own individual performances yeah, absolutely. That's all you expect from them. You don't don't expect them to go out and win gold medals, although that would be nice. Um, but being able to be the best in your country and improving on that, setting a national record is phenomenal. Running a PB is phenomenal. So uh, they're, they're sort of the milestones that we look for. And sometimes that might be a season best. So you're certainly quite happy with that. With a lot of these athletes, they don't get to run the 60 metres or 60 metre hurdles very often. So um, they don't actually have a lot of 
performances to measure up against, I guess. Um, but it's all indicative against their 100 metre times as well too. So you can see how they're travelling based on their 60s. Do you think perhaps looking to the future that, that indoor athletics uh, might actually be the way to go f- for the Pacific? That uh, Because... In other sports, it seems to me that the condensed versions, if you think of something like hockey fives, for example, or, or three, 3x3 basketball, it, it, it's less financially expensive for a Pacific country to take part in those sports. I'm wondering, do you think in, indoor athletics would be the same? It would be lovely. They're, they're actually looking at things where they're having short tracks. So instead of having a full 400-metre track, they're allowing people to have um, a 200-metre track. So who knows, they could start moving in that direction. And certainly it would be wonderful to be able to go into an indoor track and know what conditions you're getting um, similar to sprinters, how they have similar conditions in the pool wherever they are. We're battling headwinds, tailwinds, crosswinds, um, you know, hot, cold, you can get sort of a multitude of things and rain. So at least with the indoor, you know what you're getting every time you turn up there. And tell me a little bit about uh, your role over there with these uh, athletes. I mean, are are they enjoying the experience or is it a little bit uh, chilly for a Pacific Islander in Scotland at the moment? It's very chilly for a Pacific Islander in Scotland. It's chilly for me too, and I came from Adelaide. So, um, yeah, they've certainly got the puffer jackets out in full force, but um, just it, enjoying the whole experience of being in a hotel with the other athletes and seeing, you know, some superstars around in the dining hall, um, being able to hop on the bus with them. And then we went to the main stage today and I think they were all pretty excited when they saw what they were going to be competing in and saw how it was all set up behind the scenes and um, you know going onto the warm-up track and battling it out with all of the other athletes and you know having to sort of be mindful of everyone and um, it was a little bit entertaining there were a few near wrecks with some of the um, the athletes running around the bends um with photographers stepping out in front of them so that was quite entertaining but luckily no one was hurt and it is a big opportunity uh, for these athletes uh, from the pacific to to have their moment on the big stage and and of course there's been a lot of talk lately about the the pacific old sports initiative through the aoc and the money that's been contributed to help athletes not just from track and field but from other sports too who are looking to make it to the paris olympics but i, I noticed the story um regarding australia's men's 4x400 team who are now in a position to qualify for the world championships in the bahamas and, and they've done that with some assistance from Papua New Guinea. So it works both ways, doesn't it? The PNG team have helped the Australians to set this time. Oh, absolutely. And it becomes a team effort, doesn't it, in the Oceania family? And it was really nice to see. I was at that meet where they did that. And it was nice to see the Australians over there with the PNG boys afterwards in getting photos taken with them. So um, it's it's lovely for them to be recognised of the part that they did play in that. And now um, hopefully we'll have the boys at in Bahamas and um, maybe at the Olympics. So that's that's what it's all about. It's being able to get people to qualify and then have their moment to shine. And of the 14 athletes that uh, you're looking after there uh, over in Scotland, is there one of the 14 that you think might do something special? Uh, well, I think that 
it is a little bit of an unknown. Um, hopefully they will come out there and they'll run some pretty spectacular times. I think with the boys in the 60 metres, um, if we could get someone to qualify through to the semis, that would be a huge moment for them. Uh, it's not going to be easy. And then obviously, you know, we've got some hopes for Adrian Minaghi to potentially um, threatened for a spot in that semi-final in the the hurdles, so she's obviously going to have to pull something pretty special out. But she's been doing some really good training sessions, so um, you never know. We'll, we'll see what she's capable of doing. And the main thing is she wants to be competitive. Well, uh, we wish you uh, and the team. I guess it is the team in a way, isn't it? Or maybe the the Pacific family. We should call it them, is. I suppose, these days. The fourteen athletes from fourteen countries. So we wish them well. We wish you well, keeping a close eye on everything. And thank you so much for joining us on the line from Scotland. We really appreciate your time. Not a problem. Thank you. Alison, Alison Fairweather there, who's Oceania Athletics uh, Performance Manager, looking after those uh, 14 athletes uh, from the Pacific, uh, one, one from each of 14 Pacific Island nations competing in the World Indoor Championships. And yeah, a couple of semifinals will go down very nicely. Disasters are inevitable, but losing your life or home isn't. Learn what to do before, during and after disaster in a program aimed at helping you keep safe. Pacific Prepared is all things disaster preparedness for the Pacific, with a team of reporters on the ground having conversations and bringing you the stories that could help you, your family and community prepare for natural disasters. Pacific Prepared, Fridays from 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Right now, you're listening to the Friday Morning Sporting Edition of Pacific Beat. Uh, I'm Richard Hewitt. Uh, thanks for listening uh, wherever you're listening and however you're listening. Now, a little earlier, we were made reference to uh, the problems that uh, Fiji are having at the moment, uh, finding a head coach to look after the Flying Fijians, the men's national rugby team, of course. And back in late December... The headline in the Fiji Times read, Frank, after top job, huge backing for Boisvert to coach flying Fijians. The story said that not only had Fiji Rugby and Nandronga's former coaching director, Frank Boisvert, applied for the top job, but he had a wave of popular support behind him. Beauvoir has since confirmed he lodged his online application on the day the job was first advertised and received a message confirming that his documents had arrived at the other end. Since then, he had heard nothing which may not be a surprise because a Fiji Sun journalist made some inquiries and was told that the FIU had actually received nothing from the French coach. So right now it would appear that the FIU's application process, which has already been heavily criticised, has failed again. And Franck Boisvert is very unhappy that he appears to have missed his chance as a result. The thing is that it was not handled by uh, Fiji Rugby Union. That's a problem. It was handled by this uh, firm from New Zealand called Global Sports, which is uh, very odd to me because why is it that uh, FRU cannot handle the application themselves? Like when I was with FRU, we handled the application for the seventh job uh, ourselves. And and that's how we got Ben Ryan. We conducted interviews all day long with Sally Sorovaki, and that is how we selected Ben Ryan. So I don't understand why FRU cannot do the same thing. Why did they refer everything to this uh, firm? And this firm doesn't know anything at all about the situation here in Fiji Rugby. They have absolutely no idea of who I am, okay, or what's the situation like in Fiji and so on. They are totally clueless. And they did their selection just on, on CV and not knowing anything about the Fiji rugby situation. If Fiji Rugby Union wanted to select the best candidate, then they should do it themselves. 
if we're saying that this is a mistake on their part, this is not the first yeah. one they've made because, of course, Senator Vakula, who, who apparently his application did get through, but then he was sent yeah. an email saying he wouldn't be required for interview, and then a couple of days later he was sent an email saying he would be required for interview. So, therefore, how much confidence can followers of Fiji Rugby have in this process nearly three months what? since the applications were first advertised? Well, you can read the comments in the post that I put it on uh, Fiji Rugby History. You have the answer there. I have the support of basically the whole country. People come up to me and ask me, you know, uh, we want you to be the coach, blah, 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 etc. And uh, just one or two voices are, are just uh, not agreeing with that. But the vast majority of people here in Fiji want me to be the, the head coach. For me, it's very, very encouraging and very heartwarming. So have you heard anything back from the FIU recently? I mean, are, are they going to relook at this? Because clearly, I mean, you have evidence that you submitted your application and you received notification right. that they had received your application but somehow it's disappeared right it looks like he was lost somewhere because that guy there um, Peter Macy he asked the IT department okay to check on the website and they couldn't find anything even though I have proof I have the exact time where they send me back the confirmation that I had applied is all I can say for now so is there anything else you can do or essentially has your application gone to God and, and that's it there is no opportunity for you now to put your case forward people uh, uh, suggest me a lot of uh, things like go to VAG VAG yeah? oh the VAG. Attorney General uh, okay yes yeah they asked me to do that do you think what's happened here is simply a mistake or do you feel that there's something more to it? No, I feel that that maybe they put up this advertisement, okay, first, and then I was the first one maybe to uh, apply because I did it right away. And then they changed their system. They add uh, something to it, okay, and then the application went missing. This is what I think. It goes without saying this must be deeply frustrating for you. Oh, you bet. <laughs> Especially because I was carrying the hope of the whole nation. So the whole nation wanted me to be the coach, to change the style of the team, to go back to what people call the Fijian flair. Instead of having a system with only one threat from a breakdown, I was going to implement a system with, you know, zero threat. In the last World Cup, the game planning was absolutely horrible. There was no game planning at all. The strength of Fiji rugby in the back line and they kept going with the forwards which makes absolutely no sense you know this is the first thing that we teach to our level three uh, coaches that is you must first do your team profile and in a team profile you must assess where are your strengths and where are your weaknesses okay and obviously the the strength of the Fiji team you know is in the back line and this is why it's so frustrating and this is why people also you know are frustrated all over the world that the Fiji players are not, I feel like they are honest. It feels like they're not playing uh, freely. And I wanted to give back that freedom to the players, develop their intelligence, develop their training. You know, instead of doing weights all the time, like they were doing at the World Cup, me, I would have have them play, 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 play at practice and having fun. I wanted the players to have fun, to enjoy themselves. And people know that I could change that. And this is why it's so frustrating that I don't have an opportunity to do that. Frank Bovair, who it would appear is not in the mix for the head coach's job with the Flying Fijians through no fault of his own, but perhaps the amount of publicity his case and the FIU's apparent failure has generated might change things. We shall see. Now, rugby fans in Fiji have more reasons than one to be grateful to Frank Bovair. He was on the interview panel that selected Ben Ryan as men's sevens coach, and not everybody wanted to appoint him at that time. And believe it or not, Frank had to fight to push the deal through, and the rest, as they say... 
is history. And talking of sevens, the World Series resumes in Los Angeles this weekend with Fiji third on the standings, but way behind runaway leaders Argentina. Without a tournament win in 19 attempts now, the Fijians are in pool C alongside France, Canada and Great Britain. So you would think a Fijian team on form would top that pool, but uh, no guarantees. Samoa, who are fighting to avoid a relegation battle, well, they have a tough task. They're in pool B with the USA, New Zealand and Australia. Meanwhile, in the women's series, Fijiana, they line up in Pool A alongside Brazil, South Africa and New Zealand. ABC Radio Australia's coverage of the NRL is on each weekend of the 2024 season. Oh yes, what a combination. Tune in for every tackle. And ladies and gentlemen, it's hammer time. And every try. Step pass, one, two, three, score between the post. Tune in each weekend for live and commercial-free coverage right here on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Hold the front page! And it's uh, left to me to hold the front page this morning. We'll just take a look at one or two of the stories uh, making news headlines around the Pacific on this uh, Friday, the 1st of March. And uh, the French Senate has voted by a large majority, 307 to 34, in fact, uh, to postpone New Caledonia's crucial provincial elections later this year. This was a story we reflected earlier in the week, and that postponement has now come into being. It means that uh, the elections in the three provinces in New Caledonia scheduled for mid-May will now be pushed back to the 15th of December at the latest. So an election still scheduled to take place this year at least. But uh, it's a decision which uh, has not exactly gone down well in New Caledonia with the pro-independence lobby. Indeed, uh, Robert Zio, the recently elected first pro-independence Canuck senator, voicing his opposition saying it was an attempt for the French government to erase the Canuck people by drowning it in a demographic flow. A move, he said, was akin to, and I quote, an attempt to legitimise a new form of colonisation. Uh, on the other hand, the French Home Affairs and Overseas Minister, uh, Gérald Damanian, who has uh, been to New Caledonia a few times lately, has uh, justified the text of the bill, saying this allowed for about 25,000 French citizens, Canucks and non canac to exercise their right to vote in local elections, which they had been denied under previous rules introduced as part of the 1998 Numia Accord. This, of course, is a reference to the election role, the electoral role. The French are looking to ease the restrictions on that role that have been enforced for the lo- for the longest time. Uh, the new proposed restrictions, in fact, would change the 1998 frozen list to a simple minimum 10 years of consecutive residency in New Caledonia. It's never been an easy situation in the French territory. It's not getting any easier. Now, the government of Papua New Guinea has taken control of the supply and storage assets of the country's sole fuel supplier. This move comes two weeks after Puma Energy announced that its in-country stocks were exhausted because of a foreign currency shortfall. Fuel rationing has already been introduced and airlines have been forced to reduce their operations. Prime Minister James Marape says the Cabinet has invoked the Essential Services Act to seize control of Puma's energy supplies. And on a sporting theme, Vanuatu's men's soccer team have started training ahead of a series of international friendly matches to be played in Saudi Arabia later in the month. Vanuatu will take on Guinea, Brunei Dar es Salaam and Bermuda. 
in the mini-tournament, which is part of a pilot series introduced by FIFA with the aim of giving lower-ranked nations more international games. Papua New Guinea have also been invited to take part in the experiment with the couples lined up to take on Bhutan, Central African Republic and host nation Sri Lanka. Uh, that could be interesting. Uh, the Bhutan team, the Bhutan women's team is currently being coached by Nicola Demain, who was uh, famously kicked out by the PNGFA after winning the Oceania Championship with the women's team, but to their tournaments being played in Sri Lanka so I guess maybe the two sides will not meet uh, the hope is that these tournaments will soon become a regular part of the FIFA calendar and uh, we hope therefore that more nations from Oceania will become involved You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia now, while negotiations take place with Papua New Guinea and the NRL with the aim of paving the way for a PNG team to join Rugby League's premier competition, the man in charge of the sport in New South Wales is calling for other Pacific nations to be represented in Australia's second tier. New South Wales Rugby League's Chief Executive David Trodden wants to see teams from Fiji, Samoa and Tonga fielding teams in the New South Wales Cup at some point in the future. That competition is the southern equivalent of Queensland's Host Plus Cup, or the Queensland Cup, which has featured the PNG Hunters for a decade now. The Kaibiti Silktails, who are fielding a team in the under-21 jersey flag competition this season, already have ambitions to represent Fiji in the New South Wales Cup eventually. And Mr Trodden says if they can do it, then he doesn't see why Samoa and Tonga can't do the same. I think uh, really strongly that the size of the Pacific nations is such that they would have difficulty in moving from um, playing in local competitions straight to having a viable team in an NRL competition and um, really difficult for that to be sustainable. And so the natural progression for Pacific nations to build capacity and to build sustainability in terms of performance in um, competitions in Australia or elsewhere um, is through the, the, the second tier and the lower tiers of football in Australia. And so that's certainly our, um, our experience and our um, approach to the Kaviti Silktails from Fiji who play um, in our lower tier competitions. And I think that, um, that, you know, the experience that we've had with the Kaviti Silk Tales can be replicated uh, in Samoa and, um, and Tonga and places like that as well. Um, and our colleagues in the Queensland Rugby League have done the same thing for quite a few years now with um, uh, the PNG Hunters who play in the Queensland Cup competition. And, you know, that, that, that team um, will, you know, provides a bit of a foundation for... Um, a PNG team to enter into the um, NRL competition, which is being mooted at the moment. So, so I think the real progression is through the lower tiers of competitions in Australia uh, to ultimately build capacity to play at higher levels. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, that model similar to the Kaiviti Silk Tales, which, you know, they're obviously a success story, but I suppose when I look at Samoa and Tonga, their infrastructure within those countries are somewhat limited than what Fiji has to offer. Where would you see that affiliation between New South Wales Rugby League and Samoa and Tonga coming from? Would it be sort of through engagement offices on the ground? Would it be through affiliations to, to local clubs within New South Wales Rugby League? What's your vision around that? 
Well, well, I think it, you've got to have people on the ground in the Pacific Islands. I mean, if all we're doing is uh, sort of having Pacific Islanders who are based in Australia playing in Australian teams, that doesn't really achieve a whole lot, I don't think. I mean, we've got that at the moment. Uh, what it's about is building capacity for locals in the Pacific Islands. And so you start off uh, with development offices. You start off by having involvement by, by teams from Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, wherever, Playing at a playing at a level of football in our in our competitions that they have a capacity to compete at, and there are plenty of levels that they can compete at. And then, as you gradually build capacity, they move upwards in the ladder of um, of competitions. Um, that's the approach as I said we've taken with Cavite Silk Tails, and well, ultimately, I've said a few times before. Ultimately, we want them playing in our knock-on effect state cup competition, which is the second tier competition. And we had hoped that they would be there by now, but COVID sort of interrupted the plans a little bit. But ultimately, if they're not there in a few years, um, that project will have failed. And that's we're making every effort to make sure that they progress to that level. So just to clarify, so the expansion that you're eyeing, you, you very much want the players to come out of those Pacific Island nations and it wouldn't be so much focused on um, Pacific di- diaspora-based players? That's exactly right. We've got, we've got that at the moment. I mean, we have all mm. sorts of competitions in Sydney at the moment. We have her- heritage nation competitions that, that sort of cater for the Pacific Islanders that are already based in Australia. So I think we've got that pretty much covered. But, you know... That adds an additional attraction for, you know, a Tonga or Samoa playing in our competitions out here because uh, there's such a there's such a sort of a, a wide base of support that already exists in Sydney and, and um, other places in Australia for um, for those nations. You mentioned a, a little bit about the Queensland Cup before and obviously the Hunters are up there, but I look at some of the other clubs up there. Uh, the Central Coast Capra has actually come to mind. They actually recruit a, a lot of Pacific-based players to, to develop them themselves outside of the Hunters program. Do you think pathway programs, you know, such as the Ron Massey Cup, the Queensland Cup, should take a much more active role in developing Pacific-based players, especially given that that's so much of the discussion around a PNG NRL team is where is that development pathway coming from? I think clubs that are playing competitions are always going to be motivated by the individual interests of the clubs. And so it's difficult at a club level to get clubs to focus on particular game-wide aspirations. It's sort of that that, that, that focus has to come from higher up the chain. And uh, I just wonder whether it's possible to have any um, sustainable uh, impact with Pacific Island development unless it's at a sort of a a national level as opposed to a club level. And I'm not sure how close you are with Peter Valandis, but can you uh, give us any updates from inside the boardroom in terms of talks with PNG? Do you think they're likely to get that coveted 18th NRL licence? Well, I'm not close. I'm not close enough to the final decision. But I mean, everything everything you hear publicly uh, suggests that uh, there's a really strong possibility that that's going to happen. What you hear publicly from the NRL, but also what you hear publicly from the federal government. I mean, there seems to be a significant amount of support for it. And uh, if everybody is uh, saying the same things and everybody's supportive, um, you'd be a brave man to bet against it. I think. Yeah, it does seem like there's momentum uh, gathering for uh, Papua New Guinea and that 18th NRL licence, but uh, clearly, obviously, a reason for optimism for Samoa and Tonga as well, that they might start moving up the uh, rugby league ladder in the not-too-distant future. That's the New South Wales Rugby League CEO, David Trodden, speaking there to Kyle Evans. 
Yeah, just a word on cricket and uh, Vanuatu's uh, men's hopes are still alive at the World Cup Challenge League playoff series that's being played in Malaysia. Earlier in the week, a nail-biting win over the host nation and a surprise defeat for Bahrain by Tanzania meant the team from the Pacific had made it into the Super 6 stage of the tournament. It was vital that Vanuatu achieved that in order to shore up their line of funding from the ICC for another year. Now their aim is to finish top four and improve their bottom line still further. But they didn't start well. Well, crushed by Kuwait in their opening Super 6 match by more than 200 runs, unfortunately. Next up today, it's Bermuda before Vanuatu finish off the competition against Italy on Sunday. Now, the Paris Olympics and Paralympics are not far away now and the funding programme organised by the Australian government to support a large group of Pacific athletes with Olympic ambitions is gathering momentum. To promote the link-up between Pacific Oz Sports, the Australian Olympic Committee and the Pacific Nations, the media were invited to meet several of the athletes who are benefiting from Australian support in Sydney this week. Dubravka Valada accepted the invitation on Pacific Meets' behalf and discovered that while those athletes are very grateful for the financial help they're getting, there are still sacrifices to be made on the road to Paris. Take your marks. Set. Papua New Guinea athlete Rally Kaputin has been training hard every day to qualify for the Olympics. Receiving support has been an immense help for her. It will definitely help me to travel to, to places where I need to, to get competition done. She will have to travel to several places to compete in the coming months. She's yet to qualify, but hopes she makes it to the Olympics. Paris Olympic Games, which is my goal. Uh, I love Paris so much and to be able to qualify to be part of the Olympic Games, it will be a dream come true for me. While she's dreaming about competing in the city of love, she's also keen to see some of its landmarks. I've been dreaming to see the Heffel Tower, like see it with my real eyes. But there are sacrifices. While focusing on her sports career, she had to put other parts of her life on hold. I've been in America on a track scholarship, but I have to study at the same time. So I graduated in 2018, but then I really wanted to just focus on becoming an Olympian and achieving my childhood dream. So I decided to put my degree aside and... Uh, focus on becoming an Olympian first and then so I've sacrificed my degree I also sacrificed my family back home to travel overseas Samoan boxer Ato Plachiski Faungali has also been training hard and the funding he gets keeps him going any support will help so every little thing matters to to me especially like you you need all the, the support Especially for these games, it's the big games, Olympic Games, so I just want to make the most of it. Without it, he'd have a hard time. Me at the moment, um, I'm working two jobs, so it'd be, be very hard, especially um, with the training camps I'm doing, I'm trying to go overseas as well, and um, train of other Olympic athletes and um, get dietitians and all these strength and conditioning coaches. There's a lot of things I need, and luckily I'm getting support now. While he's abroad, training, competing and giving his best, he misses out on time with his loved ones. I have a daughter as well, so I'll be sacrificing time away from my daughter. 
missing some time from her growing up, so it'd be very hard, but um, hopefully all of it pays off. Kiribati boxer Teresa Tawiri says she's learning new moves from her new Australian-based coach. It makes us to train hard. It, it helps us a lot. He's a good coach. He's tough when we train. A lot there, like um, combos, moving, yeah. Para-athletic and powerlifter Elienok from Vanuatu is also highly inspired by the support she gets. Really um, motivate me to push forward in uh, my sport, to get more tr- trainings and um, to compete. Um, yeah, I'm just um, grateful for having uh, that in my life. If I didn't have the support, uh, Pacific Coast sport, maybe I wouldn't be here or I wouldn't be travelling around, seeing other countries and even representing my country. Competing means the world to her. It really in- helps me in my life to feel confident and uh, to stand up for myself. To f- if I face any challenges that I can come uh, overcome, it really helps me to be a good person as well. And I'm looking forward for the uh, Paralympic as well. I hope that I'll be taking part there and uh, I really wanted to see Paris as well. (laughs) The Palm Scheme worker has to also take part in a number of competitions to qualify for the Paralympics. If she makes it, her plan for Paris is to catch up with other sports people, but with her son at home always on top of her mind. Most uh, thing that I look forward for Paris is that I want to meet famous soccer players in Paris, yeah. <laughs> like one of the youngest players there, uh, Mbappe. Uh, maybe I can meet him because um, he's like my, uh, my son's favorite player. Uh, my son is their biggest fan. <laughs> so you're getting an autograph? <laughs> uh, maybe if I'm there, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Our lifter Ellie Enoch, a fan of Kylian Mbappe, hoping to sample the glitz of Paris and compete at the Paralympics later this year. And she was talking there to our reporter, Dubrovka Volodair. And that's it from this edition of Pacific Beat, the Friday morning sporting edition. Thanks very much indeed for your company. As uh, once again, plenty of sport going on this weekend, not least that battle of uh, the Pacific between Moana Pacifica and the Fijian and Dua right here in Melbourne promises to be a very entertaining game. Wherever you're watching, wherever you're going, have a great sporting weekend. <laughs>